This is part two, the conclusion of my conversation with Edward Ongweso Jr. of Vice and Wendy Liu, whose book Abolish Silicon Valley will be released April 14th on Repeater Books. Our discussion is very much inspired by Edward and Wendy's work into Silicon Valley, how it's failed to bring about a utopia for the many, and has instead concentrated wealth and power into the hands of a few. We'll discuss how these systems are toxic, if they can be reformed, and how Silicon Valley has failed America at this time of need with the COVID-19 pandemic. It's a fascinating conversation that touches upon tech, sexism, racism, privilege, politics, and how our current world order may be changed by this global health crisis. For more fascinating conversations like this, you can go to our back catalog on the Arts of Travel podcast. We're on Apple, Spotify, Google, and other platforms. We've interviewed Edward previously, mostly focused on his work into platforms like Uber, Airbnb, and other tech monopolies. You can go to our YouTube channel where we put up great videos with art and artists from all over Asia. And you can go to our main hub for programs, articles, and ideas. That's asiaarttours.com. Yeah, I was thinking of, I've been like for a while, like really having a hard time with this review I wanted to write of Mr. Robot. Initially, it was supposed to be like, you know, a, um, an article on uh, Phineas Fisher and um, the sort of hacking that, you know, they or the group that's behind that moniker has done. And um, I was doing it at the same time I finished up Mr. Robot, which had like a weird sort of political trajectory where like season one, it starts off with like a very, you know, insurrectionary move. Season two and three are like, at times it feels like Radlib and other times feels like it's just like very reflective to give room to like more politics. And then season four, I think the politics kind of become like a background for a more person, a personal story. But um, the point I guess I wanted to make with that is like um, the question I've always thought about or wondered is like, you know, even in media where in like in that where you have some sort of, you know, character who's willing to like get hurt or go to jail, um, it ends up being like a very sort of like solitary martyr discussion or viewpoint instead of like a collective thing like by the end of that show you get a very individualized look at like Elliot's you know trauma and the pain that made him eventually want to like lash out against society whereas like if we're all gonna need a large amounts of people large amounts of change we're gonna need large amounts of people to be willing to like put themselves out there not because they're gonna get something better or but also because like it's what would need to happen for all of us to get something, you know, um, either as community members or just as like human beings um, or people who live on a planet that like is a real thing and and is at risk of being destroyed by this specific economic system. And 
I hear you. I, I I don't know. I feel like sometimes we like. I agree with you that like. There's always like a reluctance to give up position and and comfort, and also I think a delusion that like this period of history is like so much more different and we have so many more avenues. When like I don't think there's there's been much proof that like this epoch of social history won't go the way every single or political history has gone the way every single other I guess has gone for like significant advances, which is political you know, violence or disruption of the, you know, society itself or like an insurrection or a revolution or something that is a very sharp, you know, divercation from the status quo. And I don't know, I maybe part of it is also like how many things I feel like maybe some people get overwhelmed with like how much we have because we have like climate change coming in. We have like the threat of like some all consumptive economic crisis coming in. We have multiple health crises coming in. We have like the all, the ever present specter of like military confrontation, not in the sense that like, you know, two countries hate each other, but like we have a, a suicidal like nuclear regime in place and, and, and defense systems, which could easily like automatically go off and or mistake like the moon rising for a missile as they have in the past or 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 have ghost signals and think that something is someone's launching and launch because of the small reaction time like there's so many threats and so many like tight wires we're walking on that maybe also there's like that that hope is a delusion or a, a protection of ourselves to be like we can make things better if we just do like the civilized um, you know, bourgeois politics form of like... I mean, we have to remember we're, we were all liberals, uh, or most of us. Like, very few of us started off like, boom, radical. I started off as a liberal. I think, Edward, it would... Uh, Wendy, it sounds like for your own, you had to unlearn a lot of the toxic ideology of Silicon Valley and and come to your own political conclusions and ideology. And Edward, you did as well. I think we are in many ways... Uh, we still speak in the language of liberals. And we, we are able to do that because, um, at least for the three of us, I'd imagine, though, we all have, probably share violence in terms of racism or genocide in our backgrounds, uh, being Armenian for me, uh, Edward being black, Wendy being an Asian woman. Um, we still speak as liberals. We still speak in, I think, this language of we can build this sort of uh, cosmopolitan project that we see globally is is falling apart. And when I look in the streets in COVID-19, all I see is violence. All I see is are these life and death decisions where people literally, like we talk about just in time production, that also applies to the bodies, where if they can't work, you can't get food. Um, and so I don't know, I, I just, I, I, I suppose that is a lot of my, my criticism for um, this is not the, the type of leftism that has been so prevalent in the US and UK, I think has really ignored these global uprisings that um, exist because a liberal solution is nowhere to be found. And increasingly, I think in our countries where we, we try to play nice with the Sanders, we're not going to be able to get a liberal solution, a political solution either. I think it'll have to be uh, a riot. Um, or, or something along those lines, something outside of the political. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, yeah, like I said, I was a liberal until, I mean, just like a couple of years ago, really. But then 
even then it was like a very gradual unlearning of like liberalism and liberal ideology. And for a while, I really thought that, you know, electoral politics was the answer. If we just elected Jeremy Corbyn in the UK and Bernie Sanders in the US, then everything would be fine. And, you know, not like actually everything would be fine, but it would be the first step and that would gradually change things. Now, I mean, given what happened last December in the UK and what's happening right now with Bernie Sanders campaign becoming just like totally, you know, stoppered. Um, I think I've definitely become a lot more like black builds when it comes to liberalism. And, you know, we're seeing right now the limitations of electoral politics of making demands within the system as it exists. And I don't think those limitations are just going to go away. I think, I think it's like important to explore them to like fully, you know, unearth all the contradictions and all the possibilities. But at the same time, yeah, I'm definitely, I definitely agree with you, Matt, when you talk about like how we need to just, maybe there need to be riots, maybe there need to be you know, kinds of violence that are incompatible with liberalism for better or worse. And, you know, it's not necessarily going to be a great thing. It might be really horrible for a lot of us. But at the same time, I think if we're getting to the point where the system is untenable, the status quo is just not working, and yet there are no ways of making demands within the status quo, mm -hmm. then it's inevitable. Like, what what else is going to happen? There's, It's just like a time bomb, right? It's just waiting to explode. There's a great piece of art from Hong Kong where uh, because so many people have been arrested, uh, young people, because for a variety of reasons, I won't speak for them, but uh, it says one day we'll all wear masks. And I was talking to Edward before our chat, and uh, that quote really comes to mind where the image I would see is people going out in their N95 sort of COVID-19 masks uh, and, and marching through the streets. Um, and like Vicky was saying in my last episode with her, the erasure of these other movements drives me fucking insane um, for a lot of the louder voices on the left to ignore what's happened in Lebanon, uh, in Hong Kong, in Thailand, which was stoppered right before right before this, uh, this crisis, uh, in India. It drives me insane. And I understand a lot of people have invested a lot of political capital in Sanders and spent their lives organizing. But um, people are dying and uh, we need to be willing to abandon political solutions uh, if if they're not saving those people's lives. I feel like also like a lot of those erasure efforts and then also other movements that like center themselves on trying those electoral approaches, focus on like harm reduction or mitigation or pitch it as that or some form of that. And I'm always curious or at a loss like communicate clearly about that with them because i also i also feel like if we're interested you know harm reduction or harm mitigation then like you're saying you know like choosing a path which is i mean people are dying and and so like is if the harm reduction is people dying but like in more invisible ways you know then why is that a path that we're we're pursuing or allowing to be pursued instead of indulging you know other forms like like Vicky points out like riots have always been like kind of looked down on and written out of various accounts of like why things happen but then there are also people I also think it's interesting there are other people like who are hailed in the left that focus on that or talk about a bit about it like mike davis for example you know and or and or and talk about like 
urban core or like populations of people in in large cities who are kept out explicitly and I don't know. Maybe it's probably because in the U.S., like like you said, we all speak in the language of liberals. So like, there's not, there's always a reaction to that to be like, okay, let's bring them back in and like redo the cosmopolitan project, but like with us in charge of it. Versus like maybe it just doesn't work um, for specific reasons that need to be like uprooted um, by masses of people instead of just like you know built over with laws and and reforms and like piecemeal implementations to, to pivot back to silicon valley for these last uh, few questions now that i've depressed and enraged you and wiener in her uh memoir has talked sort of about the casual sexism uh, other uh writers have have spoken about it as well um and then there's the other uh avenue of sort of ethno supremacy and uh, Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk, uh, the sort of dark enlightenment is very orthogonal, if not directly related to at times to white supremacy. Um, I think that's well documented. I don't think that's controversial to say, Edward, you can add nuance there, uh, I'm sure. Um, but also uh, researchers like Kuchang Fang uh, and Evian Leidig, who research uh, Hindutva and Han supremacy, Han chauvinism, have said a lot of this ideology comes from centers of tech where a lot of the, the uh, tech workers or, or tech centers of power for Chinese diaspora, Hindu diaspora, um, the BJP has, has sort of built a lot of its strategy on tech and these sort of transnational pipelines of toxic ideology of, of Hindu supremacy. And um, we, we've talked about sexism. We've talked about racism. Why do these toxic ideologies seem so prevalent in tech itself and then um why are they what what should we be aware of or concerned about that they appear to be transnational where maybe in shanghai we'd be producing han chauvinism in bangalore we'd be producing hindutva and then in silicon valley we'd be producing this dark enlightenment slash white supremacy coupled with misogyny in all three of these areas what what does that pattern say to you or when you look at it if you can't give a cogent answer because it's a huge question, what would be some things that immediately jump out as, as instinctual responses to this? I think what's special about Silicon Valley is that what's in- underpinning all of these problems of discrimination is this idea of meritocracy because Silicon Valley is built on this like very concentrated dose of meritocracy. And it exists in other industries as well. You definitely see it in like Wall Street. Um, you know, you have this idea that everyone there is the smartest person in the room wherever and so, you know, the fact that it's like mostly just like white men who went to elite schools, it's because they're just really good. You have a similar kind of vibe in Silicon Valley. And I think it, it's partly this, uh, like I have a theory that's kind of, kind of psychological and that some of the people who believe it the most just maybe had a hard time as kids and they really believed in their intellect and that got them through. And because of that, they cannot divorce their idea of what happened to them with what should happen to everyone. They think that, you know, because they succeeded based on what they think of as just their personal merit, then this system is good. It works. And so if you take that, take that ideology and you put it in a system that is already highly striated, has a, you know, a lot of just historical forms of oppression, racism, sexism, all these things. Well, of course, you're just going to get this like hyper concentrated, uh, very unequal system where you have just like white men at the top and then everyone else just gets the trickles. 
And so, yeah, I think it's just looking at it structurally. I think it makes total sense that tech is full of people who really believe that they themselves and, you know, people like them are just brilliant and everybody else is just a kind of like dumb. But I also don't think this is, this is not something that like tech invented, right? If you look at Henry Ford and the way he talked about his workers, he really thought his workers were just dumb. He thought that the reason they were able to do really repetitive factory work is because their brains just weren't as good. Whereas someone like him, he's just a genius and he could not bear, you know, stamping the same metal part on a, on an assembly line for like eight hours straight. But those workers of his, they're just, you know, they're just like a little simple. And so I think this is like kind of an ideology that a lot of um, agents of capital have always had because it's convenient for them. It's convenient for them to believe that their workers are just not as smart. And also that people who are like making less money than them are just either not as smart or not working as hard. Or if they are, one day they'll make, they'll make money. Like they want to believe that the system works because the system is what guaranteed is what got them there in the first place. And so like, uh, you know, a d- downstream effect is that you have women being paid less. You have people of color being paid less and just not getting opportunities. You know, to them, it's just kind of natural. Like it's maybe they think that there's a little bit of discrimination and we should fix the pipeline problem or whatever. But I think it's like there's something about capitalism as a whole that legitimizes certain forms of hierarchy and discrimination. And in Silicon Valley, where you just have this like really hefty dose of ideology in the form of, you know, meritocracy and whatever, then it's really, really strong. And it comes off, it comes off just like reeking. Like people who don't hate capitalism can hate Silicon Valley for these things. Uh, and I mean, yeah, it's unfortunately that's, that's kind of just what happened. Yeah. I think also this is like a point or this is a place where like, you know, I think Jeffrey Epstein can help us think about the ways in which like nodes and networks of people are willing to let things slide or build legitimation narratives. Like, um, one, you know, when, when he was, uh, found dead, uh killed in the 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 prison cell you know a lot of people went back and tried to do like some sort of like um discussion of like the people around him and his role in various elite circles and i remember Evgeny morzov talked a bit about how epstein had a really ingratiated tech publishing you know um network where he connected with this uh dude brockman who was like a networker of networkers and he connected all the transhumanists and public intellectuals and like silicon valley's favorite intellectuals um with epstein and with other you know wealthy um funders or financiers for their projects and also for like chances to go on their islands and the flights and he talked about how you know when like that in of itself should tell us what we want to know about how these people view themselves and what they're selling to the public you know the idea that like the transhumanism the tech is a way to liberate humanity and like ascend to our true potential the 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 deep streaks of libertarianism um and wanting to get the government off the back are really i i think extensions of you know like you were saying it's just being agents of capital being agents of like wanting to defend their own interests, their own their own power and autonomy, and having to figure out some narrative to defend that. And some of them believing it because of personal histories, like, for example, Kurzweil, right? Like believing in death being the enemy because his dad died young. But others who just like um, sign on uh, because it's a narrative or a myth that's convenient to them. And I think that for 
a lot of these nodes of capital where it's accumulated in Silicon Valley, for example, but also across the world where you're also seeing like these ethno-nationalist projects, I think it's evidence of these places just being captured by elites or constructed by elites in the first place, right? And they're figuring out what to do with this, these, these private fortunes and what to do with this like, you know, shadow bureaucracy or shadow power apparatus and what to do with like this army of reserve talent um, and how to reorganize, reorder the, the world in some cases or their immediate world. Um, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like it should be like a warning, you know, to people because I think that that's going to be the direction that these places take us if we let them, you know, if, if you let, you know, Eric Smith and Thiel, as they begged us to let them in the New York Times, like steer us towards that private public partnership, then you just get like the immediate justification they gave with the mask off was like contain China, you know, um, because it's us or them controlling the standards of ethics and AI and capital uh, flows. And we would rather do it because we're you know, the ones who represent the end of history and the peak of civilization, whatever nonsense they, they go on about, right? And on the other hand, other centers of power, developing centers of power, will want to position themselves in antagonism or in, in direct challenging with like the existing hegemon. And say that, you know, their way of doing things is actually more stable, more successful, more durable, more dynamic, whatever narrative works. And I think that, I hope that people see these sorts of things and one, like, maybe back away from, like, the uh, the pristine image that the Valley still managed to cling on to, to this day, where even though we're having, like, a wave of tech criticism... You know, in cultural criticism, I think it hasn't, and political criticism, it still hasn't dislodged them from the central place they have in our imagination and our political system. But also, um, uh, I guess, like, let people know that it really, it doesn't have to be that way. Like, we don't need to use tech to create, you know, hierarchies, even stricter hierarchies, because everyone has their, like, allotted place in this world like like they're the woman in snowpiercer talking about how like you know some people are shoes that and some people are hats like some people belong on the head and some people belong on the bottom you know i think that them taking the mask off is a, is an opportunity in a lot of ways because i know a lot of people who have held off from like really digging their teeth into it or criticizing it because they're like at the very end of the day they they don't have the same sort of sins that traditional political structures do, right? They're not going to support one specific group over another explicitly. They're not going to support one specific cultural group or, or ethnic group, but they are, or they're moving towards that, and in, or they're embedded with people who are doing that at the highest ones. And you know, it's I, f- I feel like it's pretty dangerous, but it's all, yeah, I think it's an opportunity. I hope um, you know to um, you know keep pulling the mask off. And, and propose alternatives. When we look at sort of like everyday life, something that is really weird for me, when I go on Tinder, Tinder is like, whoa, bro, yeah, everyone come hang out at the frat. And it's just like everyone, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's that party from old school where everyone's coming. 
when you look at Bumble, it's like I wandered into like a neoliberal bacchanal. It's just, it looks like resumes. Uh, it's really, I, and I don't know why. And uh, I'm wondering for some of these um, platforms, is there a sort of an implicit, even if the designers don't intend to it, but because they have these baked in ideologies of sort of supremacy and sorting and this cult of smartness that um, Karen Ho also talks about in Wall Street, a lot of what you're saying about Silicon Valley, ethnographers like Karen Ho have talked about uh, with how they talk to people in Wall Street. They build these pipelines to Yale, to uh, Dartmouth, to, to Harvard, pull those kids out, tell them they're the smartest people in the room, and this sort of cancerous ideology metastasizes over time as they come to see themselves as masters of the universe, smarter than everyone. But when we look at the tech itself of the neoliberal orgy that is Bumble and the sort of um, the, the romance for the plebes because we have to let them continue dating of a Tinder, um, when we look at things like how we normally would covet uh, a Gal Gadot when she's on Instagram, but can be disgusted in a moment of social disillusion um, on that same platform. What do these platforms themselves speak to you about implicit sexism, racism, toxic ideologies? And are there ways to hack them or to sort of troll, use the apps um, assortive tendencies against itself? Yeah, great question. I mean, I've never used dating apps, so I don't really have a frame of reference there. But I think well, good for you, Wendy. <laughs> if you think of if you think of an app like Nextdoor, right? That's like a great. I don't know if you've had to use that yourself, Matt, um, just because you're not in the U.S. But in the U.S., there's this huge stereotype about it being this like just white, you know, uh, mostly suburban, just like rich, awful old homeowners who are just complaining about you know, about the, the neighborhood going up in flames, like, oh, there are these kids playing on my lawn, or there was a homeless man, you know, can we call the police on him? It's just like a, it's, it's accessible. And it, in a way, like, I don't know how much of that is due to the platform design versus just like the fact that they're, they're mostly, the people they're able to reach, people they've marketed to are homeowners um, of a certain like socioeconomic class. And yeah, I think, I think there's like a great question there about, um, the the kinds of uh the kinds of things that these platforms encourage and just like have on them how much of that can be changed i i don't i don't really know um but i think i mean on the point about uh karen ho's work yeah i i loved her work reading her book liquidated really just uh really resonated with me so much i think silicon valley companies are very good at doing the exact same thing that wall street companies did in different ways right so they don't necessarily have like the exact same tactics, but they'll do things like they'll sponsor conferences and hackathons. They'll have these interviews where that are just totally designed to make you feel like either you're a genius or you're just like really dumb with the point of getting people to like jump through hoops to try to prove how smart they are. And, you know, and then they end up thinking like, oh, this company is great. It's only filled with geniuses. So yeah, I think these companies are really good at getting onto college campuses and just like getting people while they're young, while they're young and naive and still, you know, willing to believe that corporations have your best interests at heart. So yeah, they have this total like cult of intelligence, uh, cult of this like prestige, this idea of that people who are in this industry are just like better, morally better, intellectually better, and just in every way better. With the platforms question, 
you know, I used them for a while and I feel like they, I mean, like platforms in of themselves are sort of fiction, but like all the things that call themselves platforms are alike in that they, there's like a, there's like a self management, uh, self pitching, a self like, um, like there's a neoliberal self that has to be presented and cultivated and managed and pushed down and grown. And I think it's been interesting to see it spreading, like colonize everything from how people show up and try to date with each other to how they communicate with their friends and family to like how they live in their neighborhoods with like that next door app and carries with it at every stage, like all these, you know, modes of discrimination and um and hate uh that people have for one another or that people are i get promulgate towards one another project onto one another but i think that with you know those those are probably like um i don't know if there's a disruption to be done there partly because they've designed it consciously to be like you're you make a decision in that moment and if you make a decision in that moment or you're reading a little bit about someone, there's like very obvious signals either in the app and its own like language or in the larger social context we are all in where it's like almost everyone else is not going to be prioritized or they're going to be biased against. And so I don't know. I think like the only way to like win is not playing, but at the same time, there's like, I don't know, with like most of these like, neoliberal do like machines that are in our lives there's always stuff you can do at the edges to subvert but the solution is like just destroying them like because as long as they exist it's like a it's, it's just like a a tower that just radiates like energy that corrupts everything around it the soil the air the water the land like it transforms everything that interacts with it and is in the vicinity of it into what it wants, whether that's a conscious decision by the designers or not. And, you know, like there are people who do alternatives to pre to existing like platforms and the monopolies that they have, but they all almost always die out or get bought up or, you know, competed against into the ground. The only way you can really fight them is like, you got to destroy them, which I don't know if we're in position to do quite yet. Are there like these, strange backstories of like a not neoliberal bumble or a not racist Facebook that um, there, there were more liberatory platforms or uh, apps that, that just are in this elephant graveyard. Well, I know like at these companies, they have like divisions that are just like their purpose is leveraging the massive amounts of insight they already have because everyone uses them in this industry or another to spot potential competitors and either poach talent or buy out the operation or crush it, you know, with competition. And like, I mean, Facebook's done it with what WhatsApp and, and uh, Instagram um, as like the, the major example of like, those are now things where the, where the future of Facebook or the future that it's pitching to us, right. With like Libra, with Facebook basics, with like these things that are going to help, you know, quote, um, people in the global South, but also profit off of them. 
like the future is on those platforms and those platforms in another world, I'm sure it could have been more liberatory, but now they're just going to be used as like vectors for mass adoption so that Facebook can like make e-coin, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that as long as they control, you know, the infrastructure and the data, they're always going to see who's like a potential risk down the road. Like Facebook tried to buy, um, or looked into at one point, like uh, acquiring TikTok, if I'm if I remember right, you know, like, and then what Facebook tried to do is like, okay, if we can't buy them, let's make like a clone and put it out in Mexico and try it out and see if that works. And if it does, then we can use that to compete with them, you know. So I don't know. It's like either they make their either they acquire you or they just make like some private version, right? Where like there are private class based Tinders and Bumbles. Um, for people who are in specific like income brackets or networks and like for them, I'm sure they have totally different dynamics, but uh, in other ways, like the same as the Tinder and the Bumble here and the same for Facebook or, you know, Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter, where it's just like anything that could have supplanted it gets consumed and then turned into like a new engine of growth, I guess. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think it's really hard for any genuinely liberatory project to succeed in the current environment just because it's like the structure is flawed. It's like the, you know, the mm. soil is diseased. You can maybe have a, like a little bit of success, but overall it's really, really hard. On Tinder, I believe they've, they've manipulated it. So if you're more, there's, as Edward was saying, there's a special Tinder where if you get a certain amount of swipes, like everyone wants to bone you, you get moved up into sort of like super bone Tinder, where it's all people who want to bone each other. And uh, uh, similarly, on uh, TikTok, there's been a lot of talk about not just the censoring of Uyghurs, where Uyghurs would be posting TikTok videos and it'd be censored, but people who were uh, who were overweight um, would were finding their videos were being sort of censored, where they, you know, if they were trying to partake in sort of a social trend or some sort of dance and you were uh, overweight, their videos were not being shared as much. And I'm wondering for um, these sort of, these trends of how humans interact, date, and and fall in love, is there anything or see themselves, um, in particular if you were overweight or if you're, um, do you see if we want to use a broad term biopolitics or um, a sort of mating where we're getting all the, the, the neolibs who want to bone each other together as opposed to introducing a randomized person they might want to bone or. Uh, Mario Wagle wrote this like book, I think called like labor of love that I, that talks a bit about, um, it's like a certain, it's a history of, of dating across the 20th century up until now that talks about how the market has encroached on it and like transformed it and made it regimented it in some ways and and tried to drive underground or out of sight everything from you know having sex to uh signs of affection um to living with partners like tried to introduce like a very specific way of how everything has to be done and penalizing uh, the way that you might uh, certain types of labor uh, stepping outside those rules or those boundaries. And I think 
like connecting that back to the biopolitics, I feel like the and also much much earlier when we were talking about infinite detail, right? Like you know the movement of everything to the digital, and also the and and the hollowing out of like life for everybody else. Like I, I worry that you know people retreat to the digital because of how or look to the digital as hope because of how bankrupt our real world ends up being and in terms of like prospects for liberation and protection from the violence that you you might face if you're not just like standard white you know moderately wealthy person um but then also in the digital all those things carry on and they're even more fragile because it's not a neutral platform that you're moving your hopes onto it's one that's regimented with the end goal of having you be on it more or give up more of yourself onto it or 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 discipline yourself into a specific form um and what are you left with you're left with like having hollowed yourself out there too um and being left with no sort of liberatory potential outcome and that violence you know, chasing people from the real world to the digital um, is something I feel like hasn't been talked about. It, it, I guess it has been with like, for example, with relation to like Gamergate, right? And how instructive and insightful that has been to the way politics have worked since, um, either with harassment of people, with uh, bad faith attacks with like marginalization of certain voices, but I think like that that f- the hollowing out of real life, moving it to the digital, and the digital still being like empty and just as violent, and like the consequences of that, I don't think we've like dug as deep as we could or or should yet. The only thing I would add is that there are these dating apps that are specifically for elites to mate with each other. And I mean, it's, that says something, something mm-hmm. pretty dire about our times, like the fact that they're getting funded. Of course, they're getting funded. VCs would love to use apps like this. They, they want to only date amongst themselves, right? So it's just, yeah, I think it's pretty dark all around. And for July Harmon, the 14-year-old who started the renegade TikTok dance craze, originally from Atlanta. Uh, the, this, this girl dancing, it's so strange to me. I always think about an alternative future where there wasn't a TikTok. And she had just developed this dance and it spread locally in her community. And it would just be this local cultural thing that they could sort of interact with and dialogue with and figure out what it meant to them. But instead, it's sort of this cultural capital is mined by a TikTok. And then it it becomes meaningless because everyone's doing it. And I, I always wonder about that, that what that... It, the implications of that for how it neuters revolutionary energy, how it neuters our ability to understand each other. It's like we can all speak the same language, but we we don't really care that that <laughs> that we have the ability to do that. Um, you talked about that, I think, with Vicky, right, about how social capital has played, like, this pretty important role we're still grappling with in, like, taking energy that people might have had in a revolutionary sense with like Lizzo was the example you guys were talking about um, and how Lizzo like the the music that Bezos was then trying to mime and be like, 
what I just took a DNA test. Turns out I'm 100% Lizzo's biggest fan instead of yeah. the original line being like an affirmation of being a black femme, uh, you know, like a large, a large black femme in a world that all every part of that is like stigmatized or or pushed against in whether it's like standard uh, beauty forms or or like just dating, you know, on these apps or social interactions with people. And um, I don't know. I think that I, I, I do. I always wonder, like you're talking about earlier, how much of it is conscious, like people sitting in the room saying, like, we're going to crush this and how much of it is a after effect. But like when, when there's like such a consistent move to take stuff and say the only value in it is if like you can give it up to us completely and then we like spread it to everyone and mine it. And then like, if you can do that consistently for us, you can be out there. You can be an influencer. You can be like a public face or something. As long as you can give us things that are empty in in substance, but you know, dazzling potential and form. Then, um, if you can't do that, then it doesn't matter who you are. To the dustbin. So I, I guess for the the last uh, parting words uh, of for for our chat, um, is there any question that you're thinking about, or any sort of uh, angry response that is repeating in your head over and over during this crisis? For me, it's I keep repeating the phrase "riot strike riot," which I believe comes from Joshua Clover, who I have issues with, but he's still smart. Um, you know, I I love that phrase "riot strike riot" or or um, one day we'll all wear masks. Are there any sort of final thoughts of from this chat or what you've been thinking about over and over in this time of crisis that might be useful to people who are angry and don't know what to do um, to, to respond? I don't know how useful this is, but I've been thinking about WeWork a lot. And like, so I wrote an article about WeWork earlier this year. And given what's happening now, it just seems so wasteful that WeWork still exists and is still allowed to control all of these buildings and it's like you know imagine if all of the WeWorks were just treated as if they were public libraries because what's happening in san francisco right now is public libraries are closed and being turned into emergency child care and other things that the city might need what if we could just do that with WeWork? turn all take all the WeWorks that are probably empty right now because everyone's working from home make them into emergency child care you know uh shelter food anything like even, I don't know, anything. It just feels so wasteful to have this entire business model that was never profitable. It was never going to work in the first place. But at a time like this, it's just, it's completely indefensible. It's completely useless. But let's take all of these, you know, we work in anything like it, figure out how it could be converted to public use, expropriate it, whatever, expropriate the billionaires, run them, whatever, just make sure that they're being used. That, that's, that is like what I would love to see at a time like this. I definitely resonate with that. I feel like my brain, you know, on account of being like online so much, just like rotted and filled with like half-formed memes all the time. And, you know, putting aside that part, I definitely, you know, have been thinking and consumed more and more, but especially with the crisis of like, just thoughts on like what, how to pitch to people the idea that like, you know, just because something exists doesn't mean that it's a good idea. In fact, it, it's probably a bad idea that we're being sold if it exists, especially right now, and that they, we need to talk more openly 
about abolishing things, you know, you know advertising, uh, Silicon Valley, you know, political yeah. parties, you know, like maybe some shit just does not need to be ever made and we can like agree to just like get rid of it and purge it or um, not in specific forms or not for specific purposes. But like I'm more just thinking more about how to communicate to people that, you know, most of the things that exist are just, it's just like, it, they've only been here for a blink of an eye. We don't need to suffer them. But the big fight is like getting to a point where we can actually say, all right, like this is over. This is gone. We're going to get rid of this. We're going to purge it. We're going to steal this shit and like turn it in. We'll take every mansion and turn it into a museum or a garden or something. Um, but in the meantime, uh, inculcating, inculcating that sense of like, people looking around and asking what is useless shit or shit at their expense that we can get rid of, I think is like something I'm conv I'm thinking about. Where can people find you if they want more half-formed memes or beautiful prose in the case of Wendy? I'm Del System on Twitter. I mostly just shitpost. Yep, I'm, uh, I am uh, Big Black Jacobin on Twitter. I also mostly shitpost. I'm at also uh, at Motherboard Advice, um, where I uh, write rants that my editors uh, shape into coherent articles. Mm -hmm.